Well, church, today I would invite you to open your Bible with me to Psalm 78. You can find that on page 488 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. The title of today's sermon is The Anchor for Children. And I'm, yeah, believe it or not, I'm going to be keeping it to one main application. Church, let's anchor our children in God. So with that said, if you are able... Rita, you can come on up at this time. If you're able, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. If you're not able, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Psalm 78, 1 through 72, but we're going to be reading only the first eight verses. And Rita is going to be reading them in Greek, though you can follow along in your Bibles and on the screen in English. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Psalmos 78. Τη διδαχή μου, λαέ μου, ακροάσου, πρόσεξε αυτά που θα σου πω. Με παροιμίες θα μιλήσω, θα πω παλιού καιρού παράδοξα που ακούσαμε και μάθαμε και μας τα διηγήθηκαν οι πατεράδες μας. Δεν θα τα κρύψουμε από τους απογόνους τους. Θα διηγηθούμε στη γενιά που έρχεται τα ένδοξα του Κυρίου έργα, τη δύναμή του και τα θαύματα που έκανε. Εντολή όρισε στον Ιακώβ, και νόμο θέσπισε στον Ισραήλ και ζήτησε από τους προγόνους μας να τον διδάξουν στα παιδιά τους ώστε να τον γνωρίσει η επερχόμενη γενιά τα παιδιά που ήταν να γεννηθούν και εκείνοι μεγαλώνοντας να τα ιστορίσουν στα παιδιά τους για να αποθέσουν την ελπίδα τους στο Θεό να μην ξεχάσουν του Θεού τα θαυμαστά τα έργα αλλά τις εντολές του να τηρούν και να μην γίνουν σαν τους πατεράδες τους Γενιά της ανυπακοής και της αντίρρησης, γενιά με φρόνημα ασταθές και που δεν έμεινε στο Θεό πιστή η καρδιά της. The Lord has spoken to us, church. Let's respond together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, if you've ever read any early church history, then you may have come across the name Clement. Clement was one of the early church leaders who personally knew Jesus' apostles. And some scholars think that he was the first to take over leadership of the church in Rome following the martyrdom of Peter. And also, he might even be the Clement that Paul refers to as a co-laborer in Philippians chapter 4, verse 3. Now, regardless of those things, what we do know about Clement is that eventually the apostles were being killed off one by one. And as you can imagine, the church was tossed about in violent ways. But it was during that time that Clement encouraged the next generation of the church to trust in the leaders that the apostles had raised up. That means he was an anchor for the church in a time where they were especially in danger of drifting away. Ironically, tradition says that near the end of the first century, Clement was exiled by the emperor Trajan, and then while in exile, had an anchor tied around his neck and was thrown into the sea. Now that's why Clement is usually portrayed with the symbol of an anchor on his vestments. His icon is meant to be a picture of anchoring the next generation in God, no matter what it takes. And here's why I began by telling this story. 
Because as I studied Psalm 78 this week, and as I considered the needs of children who will one day move beyond the care of this church community and transition into adulthood in a storm-tossed world, the imagery that came to mind over and over was an anchor. Now, what exactly is an anchor? An anchor is a device normally made of steel, usually secured to a boat to the bottom of a body of water to prevent it from drifting due to wind or current. Note this, though. An anchor does not prevent a boat from being storm-tossed. It only prepares it. And so, likewise for our children, our purpose is not to prevent them from facing the violent waves that will come their way in life. Like, those are guaranteed. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, describes us growing up into the fullness of Christ and no longer being tossed to and fro. It's the same imagery by, quote, every wind of doctrine. So think about this according to this image that you see on the screen. Maybe two forms of massive wind coming in to storm toss our children as they move out of this community and into adulthood. One would be, as I describe it, cultural philosophy. This wind blowing in is what Romans 1 would describe as people who suppress the truth about God even though he's clearly revealed himself in creation. They suppress the truth with every wind of strange doctrine, fighting against anything that is true and good that flows from who God is and from his word. I don't have to go into details to describe these to you in this room of the things that are floating in our culture that are completely opposed to who God is and what he has revealed about himself and the truth of the good news in itself. If more than anything else, the way that we suppress the truth in our culture is by exalting ourselves and saying we proclaim what's true, not God. We take his place. Now that's one wind of doctrine coming at our children as they grow up. But there's another wind of doctrine that in some ways is just as dangerous. And so instead of cultural philosophy, I would call it cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is what happens when the word syncretism comes about in the church. Syncretism is the blending of Christianity with cultural norms. It's going beyond just contextualizing Christianity in a particular culture, but it takes the step of saying, you, in order for you to be a Christian, you have to embrace this, this, and this from the culture. And so Christians, in response to the cultural philosophies of our day, are fighting back by saying, no, you have to be this, 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 and this, in addition to believing the gospel, in order to be a Christian. And that creates what? Cultural Christianity. So that's another violent wind that our children are going to have to navigate as they grow up. Now, our purpose is not to prevent them from facing these things, but to prepare them so that they're not completely blown off the map. And so this also seems to be part of the purpose of Psalm 78. We read at the beginning of it, a mascal of Asaph. What in the world does that mean? We're not sure exactly what mascal means, but it comes from a word that means wisdom or understanding or success. And so this is a song that was meant to teach the people of Israel something really important. And perhaps this kind of psalm came from a man named Asaph because he was one of the sons of Korah. 
Now, you might remember the story of Korah because it's one of those crazy Old Testament stories that's hard to forget. I'll remind you here, centuries before, Korah had led a rebellion against Moses. And the Lord responded to that rebellion by how? Anybody? Opened up the ground and what? Swallowed him whole. Bible says he went straight into Sheol. That's crazy, okay? And so maybe Asaph knew well the danger of drifting away from God. It was rooted in his family story. And so he wrote a song for the people of Israel to remember the foolishness of the past and the faithfulness of their God. And so they would anchor future generations in him. So I would invite you to think of Psalm 78 like this. Okay? You are at a church that's three to four hundred years old. And suddenly they start singing this hymn that you've never heard before. And it starts somewhat normal, but then it moves into stanza after stanza of stories. But these aren't stories from the Bible. What you realize is they're singing the history of their church. The good, the bad, the ugly. Singing it for all to hear and see. And so, let me give you a few examples in my best Gregorian chant. Okay, bear with me here. All right, it goes something like this. God blessed us with so much wealth, but then we wasted it all on a building. God grew us to the biggest church in town. Then our pastor had a moral failure. Like what? They're singing this? God began to bring a great revival, but then the church split over the carpet. Can you imagine sitting in there, they singing this stuff? What is going on? But by the end of the song, you see people crying, lifting their hands, almost shouting the chorus. And it's all about how despite them, God had been their anchor through it all and had brought them back over and over. And then... To get even stranger in this old church, when the song is over, everyone immediately begins excitingly dispersing from the room. You're like, what in the world is going on? Why are they doing this? Not because they're leaving, but because they're all headed to serve in kids' ministry. In light of the foolishness of their past and in the faithfulness of their God, they want to anchor future generations in Him. So think of Psalm 78 and that sort of creative way. Use your imagination with me a little bit this morning. And may this psalm have a similar impact on us today. Let's read it together beginning in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth! Exclamation mark. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. Let's pause there. Here we get this sense, let's hold up a mirror to ourselves, let's be honest about our stories. Y'all, children can sniff out pretense a mile away anyways, can't they? Yes, they can. And so, let's be unimpressive but authentic with them. It will actually give a greater testimony to God's work in our lives. 
Listen to this. Children are compelled first and foremost, not by systematic theological truth, but by beauty. Right? The first sensory experience of a child is not that they read systematic theology. Here's Grudem, little baby, fresh-born baby. No, it's that they look eye to eye with their mother and their father. And the beauty of that extrapolates goodness, and from the goodness of that extrapolates eventually the truth of who God is and His creation and His gifts of a family. And so children are compelled by beauty. They need to see something real and beautiful in us. And we can't give away what we don't have. Listen, if your relationship with God is not so real that it's messy, that there's ebbing and flowing in it, that there's repentance from sin and realization of sin, sometimes at the hand of your family going, you sinned against me. And you can repent of it and you can acknowledge the ups and downs in your Christian faith. Then how's that going to be poured out to your children? What's going to be passed on to them? They need to see something beautiful at work in your life. Let's continue in verse 4. We will not hide from our children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. Let's pause there. Now what precisely is Asaph saying that they will tell their children? What does he mean by the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders he has done? Well, of course, it's the entire Old Testament up to that point. But what was the most climactic, glorious deed of might and wonder that characterized the Old Testament up to that point? Well, it was the exodus from slavery in Egypt. That is where God fulfilled his promise to Abraham to save his people and to give them a land and then to guide them with a law. And so the equivalent to us teaching our children would be what? It's not the exodus from slavery in Egypt. It's the exodus from slavery to sin. It's the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where God fulfilled and will fulfill all His promises. That's why we have a new guide for our lives. The Word of God. If they had reason to give testimony to their children in the limited revelation of God that they had at that time, we have far more, don't we? We have far more. And so these are the things, verse 5 continues, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children. Young disciples, in your sermon guides, this is what God commanded. Parents to teach their children about God. Verse 6, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn. And arise and tell them to their children. Let's pause there. So the vision here is nothing less than a cycle. An ongoing cycle of each generation proclaiming good news to the next generation. Now some of you in this room have the privilege of building on that cycle. That good cycle that you received from your parents. Perhaps they received it from their grandparents. And some of you in this room have what is perhaps the even greater privilege of starting that cycle anew in your family. And see, this is the nature of the Great Commission. I heard this from Pastor Mark Dever and it stuck with me tremendously. The Great Commission is not just reaching every nation. That's too easy. It's also reaching every generation. 
in such a way that they are compelled to then go and reach every nation and every generation. You see that? We're not just trying to pour in the truth so that they can, you know, fight back the culture. We're pouring into them in such a way that they're compelled to go and do the same things that they've seen in us. And the primary privilege of this is given not to professional missionaries, but to parents. Deuteronomy 6, 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. In other words, in every everyday moment of your life. Parents have what no one else does in the lives of their children. Access. Daily, intimate influence. Parent, like you may not see yourself as the missionary type, but God has sent little lost persons to live with you. Okay? It's not you even have to go anywhere to engage with the lost. They live with you. And so he has called you to make disciples of them every day you are sent. And this is why we are a family-centric church. We intentionally keep children in the Sunday gathering and family groups as a church rather than age-based programming because we want families to be worshiping and growing together. I know. We don't offer what I would call the full service church experience where you kind of drop your kids off upon arrival and then you pick them up when you're ready to leave on the way out. And the reason why is not simply because we lack the resources to do so and hope that someday we can get to that point where we can pull off full service. No, no, no. It's so that we don't supplant the central role of parents in the spiritual formation of the children. And so that we don't remove most of the church worshiping alongside children in the Sunday gathering because we've, we've put them in an entire different compartment of the church. However, that doesn't mean the church has no role in this process, even though the parents are the primary disciplers. Even though the, the privilege goes to parents, the burden is also laid upon the entire faith community. And so remember, Asaph begins this way, Give ear, not O parents, but O my people. It would take all of Israel to be faithful to such a massive commission. Children would not just need to learn about the glorious deeds and words of God, but see and experience them lived out all around them in all kinds of different diversity. And once again, children are compelled by beauty, y'all. They need to see something beautiful in this community. How many of my generation have you heard say something to the extent of, I love Jesus, but not the church? Their experience of church has actually dispelled rather than compelled. How many of you in this room grew up in a church context and that's your experience? You had to have an encounter with Jesus in such a way that kind of undid what you experienced in church growing up. Like, Children need to see something beautiful among us. And that doesn't mean us having everything together and having every answer, but being a space where children can do what they're doing in youth group right now. Let's talk about 10 questions. Let's not ignore those questions. Let's not come at those questions with fists up. Let's wrestle through them together because they are at a place where they're growing slowly, right? Don't have all the answers immediately overnight. You didn't. You still don't. And so that's part of them experiencing something beautiful in this in this community. 
And so in light of this church-wide responsibility, this is why we seek to come alongside parents in strategic ways, the most foundational of which is family ministries. You've already heard it this morning, but that's Antioch Kids, Young Disciples, and Youth. And these are ministries that are at the heart of our church. And I know that several ministries have started and grown in the past couple years. And that, that is fantastic as we grow as a church. And I know that people get tired of being asked to serve in ministries, especially the ministry which occasionally removes you from the Sunday gathering. That is quite a sacrifice. But here is a trend that we must keep our eye on in this church. If we see more and more people saying no to our family ministries because they are serving in other places then the reality is that we will need to limit or eliminate other ministries. Okay? Why, why would we do that? If, it's because if we aren't faithful with not just reaching every nation, but every generation, if we're not faithful with the lost already in our midst, then we're not faithful, period. Okay? I want to be faithful in the neighborhood and among the nations, but not to the extent of losing the children who are in our midst. It's like a, it's like a balance, right? We have to figure out how to, to keep this in balance. And so let me give you a little bit of information. Currently, around 50% of our membership is serving in family ministries. 50%. That's awesome. I mean, there's so many churches who would love to be able to say that. Like, I want to celebrate that. But, the majority of them are parents, okay? And I know that that's natural because you're interested in what your children are particularly involved in, but this means that parents are laboring all week long, and then when they're in the context of the faith community that's meant to help them, they're stepping out to labor even more, okay? And so my challenge this morning is, where's the other 50%? And let me put it this way. Are you serving in kids, young disciples, or youth? Maybe you can't do it on a rotation. Maybe you can do it once a quarter. I don't know. But are you serving in those ways? And if not, because I know there are legitimate reasons for people to not serve in those ways, are you then encouraging two parents? And if not, you feel like you don't really have anything to offer to encourage parents, are you welcoming two children? That's what it means to be a faith community coming alongside families, whether or not you're involved in a particular ministry. Let me give you some examples. I think about my children and who blesses them in particular ways. I think about this name that is kind of developed out of the overflow of this person's character and their love for children. Antiola. You know her as Adiola. We call her Antiola. Why? Because she loves our children so much. Our family group has tons of babies. Adiola, I mean Antiola, is always holding a baby at family group. And it blesses, blesses our children. I think of Mark and Amy Mahalov who have specifically sought to encourage parents of young children because they've raised many of their own and they're in a different season. They know what it's like to be discouraged. And that means so much to those families, mine in particular. I think about Ken Besaw, who my kids love so much that they write books about him, Okay. <laughs> Ken and the magic, or Ken and the giant vacuum cleaner, okay? The night that my basement flooded and Ken came out of nowhere with this massive shop vac and saved the day, 
okay? Means so much to my children. I think about Ed in the back, who literally has a ministry of, uh, to children of giving them suckers. Now, I know some of you are parents are like, I don't appreciate that ministry. Maybe. <laughs> Let's limit that ministry a little bit, okay? But it's a ministry that he is sacrificially doing every week that means something to our children. The Dave, how he always asks me about my kids by name. Okay, these are, these are particular ways for us to be a community that encourages parents and welcomes children. And so why, why the push here? So that we can like beef up our child care, so that we can be a place where we can get more families in here and just pack this place out more and more. No, it's, it's not that specifically. Verse 7 It's this, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Here, church, we have arrived at the heart of this passage. It's it's laboring to give these children what one scholar describes as a threefold cord of trust. Remember what we talked about last Sunday, what is at the heart of any relationship? It's trust. And we're trying to cultivate in our children a real relationship with God where they trust Him. They trust Him. And so that means this threefold cord, hope in God, humble dependence, and faithful obedience. In other words, we want to give these children an anchor. An anchor. And even those who who do follow Jesus, listen, they will waver and wrestle and wonder as they make their faith their own in adulthood. Didn't you? Like, don't you still? But you have an anchor that holds you in the wind and the waves of that wondering. That's what we're seeking to give to them, an anchor that will ultimately hold. And for children who do not follow Jesus as their anchor, because we acknowledge this doesn't fully depend on us. Only God can do the deep work down in the heart of a child to capture their heart in a life-changing way. Even for those children who do not follow Jesus as their anchor, can we give them the right foundation for taking hold of that anchor in adulthood when God says the time is right for those seeds to sprout? Let me explain it this way. There's something called the angle evangelism scale. You may or may not have heard of this. We use it in missions. But the idea is this. When someone comes to Christ, usually it's not just a matter of that one interaction. There is a whole plethora of foundational things that have had to take place before that person is ready to fully grasp the gospel and respond to it. So you don't start at zero with repentance and faith. You start at negative 10. What if a person has no God framework at all? Well, they need that. They have no experience of their inner spiritual emptiness. Well, they need that. Do they have a vague awareness of Christianity, an interest in Christianity, an awareness of the gospel, a positive attitude toward the gospel, the experience of Christian love, aware of their personal need because of sin, the grasp of the implications of the gospel, the challenge to respond personally. Even if a child does not get to zero in their time in our house in this community, can you give them negative 10 to negative 1, a foundation that will allow for zero to happen when God says the time is right? That's what I'm talking about with giving them an anchor. And then they can continue to grow from zero, the evaluation of their decision, learning the basics, a functioning member of the local church, continue to grow in character, lifestyle, and service, and then effective sharing of faith and life. They're carrying it on to the next generation to reach every nation and generation. Listen, if we aren't faithful to give them this anchor, then this is certain. 
we will have fallen into the same trap as the people of Israel. Asaph, he goes on for the next 56 verses to describe what happened to the people of Israel. And so for the sake of time, let me just give you the subtitles for each section. In verses 9 to 16, it's miracles forgotten. 7 to 31, it's murmurs of unrest. In 32 to 39, it's meaningless repentance. In 40 to 53, it's ingratitude for the exodus. In 54 to 64, it's ingratitude for the promised land. Young disciples, these are some of the things that the people of Israel did that you'll need to write down on your sermon guide. If you can't get them down now, then I would encourage you to read through Psalm 78 later and pull out the things there that the people of Israel did as they drifted away from God. Y'all know what this is? It's people who aren't anchored. And they're pulled to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They're blown off the map. They're unfit for anything else besides a warning to future generations. Don't be like them, okay? And yet, listen to how this psalm ends. That all very discouraging. But listen to how this psalm ends. The people of Israel sing 56 embarrassing verses about themselves. And then in verse 65, They begin a chorus that leads them, if you can hear it in your imagination, to crying, lifting their hands, almost shouting the words of this song. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Even though they had given up on their children, God won them back. And even though they didn't deserve it, God took on their enemies by raising up a chosen one from the tribe of Judah, David, who wasn't just a mighty warrior, but a gentle shepherd. Like, do I really need to do any preacher circus tricks up here for you all to see what that's pointing to? Okay? We were once the stubborn, rebellious, forgetful, murmuring, unrepentant, and ungrateful. And yet God still sent not just a mighty warrior to take on our enemies, but a gentle shepherd who subdued our enemies. Yes, Jesus Christ came and he took the full blast of the storm of God's wrath against our sin. And at a time when we were especially in danger of drifting away forever. His death on the cross was like having an anchor tied to his neck and him being thrown into the sea. That's what he did in your place. That's what God did for you. And yet still, the mighty warrior rose in power over death. And this is why he is the sure and steady anchor. Why he is the only one who can secure us in God, in the wind and the waves. The writer of Hebrews declares this with the same imagery. Listen to it. 
We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The inner place of God's presence behind the curtain was once only accessible by the high priest once a year in order to minister on behalf of the people of God. But now, all who come to God through Jesus Christ can be anchored in God's presence forever and made priests ready to minister. Listen, y'all, God doesn't need us to win our children. He's so good, he'll do it despite you. But he invites us to participate. I would much rather him win my children, our children, not despite me, not despite us, but in participation with him. Don't you? And now, all who come to God through Jesus Christ, anchored in his presence forever, made priests ready to minister, that meaning ready to be just like Clement, to anchor the next generation in God, no matter what it takes. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he took a cup of wine. And after blessing it, he gave it to his disciples. He said, this marks the new covenant and the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread, and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. Today we are announcing that Jesus Christ is the anchor for all generations. Our invitation today, if you're a baptized believer, is to come forward broken yourself, open before the Lord, willing to receive whatever word he has spoken to you, convicted you of, encouraged you with today, and to come and to break off a piece of bread and to dip it into the juice and to take it, remembering what he has done and proclaiming, even to our children who are maybe aren't ready to come and receive this, proclaiming that he is coming again. There'll be gluten-free available on my left, your right. If you're here today and you're not a believer, the invitation is not this table, but it's the same invitation that we hold out to our children, that you would come to Jesus himself. Okay? He has made himself available to you. Children in the room, many of you are hearing the good news of Jesus all the time. In your classes, in this gathering, from your parents as you read your Bible, maybe today you hear the Holy Spirit saying to you, it's time. It's time for you to respond. I want your heart. I want your life because I love you. And if you're hearing that in your heart, children, you can respond today as well. Talk to your parents and tell them that you want to. They can explain things to you further. Come and talk to one of us as pastors and we'll talk to you about it as well. All right, church, let's pray. We bow before you, Lord. We thank you so much for the joy of this day of promoting children. And Lord, we couldn't promote them if they weren't in our midst. And you have given us the gift of them, and so we offer them back up to you, saying, Lord, you've called us to steward, and yet these children ultimately belong to you. Have your way in their lives. Lord, we pray this blessing over them, that you would, you would cause all the purposes for which you created these children to come to pass, Lord, for your glory. 
We pray, Lord, in response to your word that you would help us to be a church made up of individual families, but one big family who seeks to anchor our children in you. You are the only God, and we love you with all of our hearts because you first loved us with all of yours. Guide us now as we respond to you in this time. May your spirit move in all of our hearts as we respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray for those in our midst who don't know you yet. May today be the day that they say, Yes, I hear you calling, Lord, and I say yes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.